Welcome to The Gallipot, and the bonus episode for Teenage Wasteland, where my friend Cheska will talk about the representation of child abuse in the media. But it will be less depressing than that sounds. A heads up that Cheska and I have known each other for a long time, so we talk about traumatic issues like sexual abuse in a colloquial tone. If you think that's not for you, maybe give this episode a miss. This episode is long, but there's a lot of ground to cover, and I think Cheska's viewpoint is one that doesn't get heard enough, so I hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm here with my friend Cheska, who uh, is an old friend of mine, and we are here to talk about child abuse. Hi Cheska, can you introduce yourself? Hello, <laughs> um, my name's Cheska, and I'm here to talk about that. Um, I'm also here to talk about some really cracking uh, drary fanfic, so, you know, <laughs> peaks and troughs. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, would you be comfortable just saying a little bit about why I've chosen to talk to you about this topic? Yeah, definitely. A little bit about me. I'm a writer, uh, screenwriter, and some for stage and stuff like that. Um, the reason Alice uh, chose to talk to me was because I have a history of child abuse um, uh, from when I was about, well, 2008. So must have been about 12-ish. My maths is terrible. Um, and I choose not to delve. Uh, but uh, delve we shall today. Um, and talk about it with you guys well thank you for that um so i will just get started so uh just to give a background on what the deal is with cheska and fan fiction uh cheska basically i i sometimes just randomly spam my friends with my fan fiction for no good reason and i did this with cheska who doesn't didn't initially really read fan fiction and i was like have you considered listening to my fan fiction podcast and she was like uh no but now i will and um so your 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 fan fiction background is kind of predominantly just my writing and a little you've you've investigated a little further but not you're not yeah yeah I have but the thing is my interest in fanfic that isn't yours uh is mainly quite kinky so. yeah but you know what fandom is a good place for kink that is I know I know <laughs> and what and like okay so like I've read a, like Sherlock and Watson mm-hmm. um kind of puppy stuff is gr- just really the best thing in the world <laughs> and um this obviously teenage wasteland which is the one we're talking about does have like elements of now which like, i did not think it did but cheska was like no Ches- it literally does <laughs> <laughs> it so does uh right so that was that was um eye-opening for me when cheska listened to the 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 chapter where harry is a wolf and hanging out with Draco, and cheska was like that was raunchy and i was like was it yeah <laughs> Right. God, uh, well, this is a great intro to me, guys. I promise you I'm more normal than I just sounded. I don't think you are. Um, no, I'm okay. not. <laughs> so, so I get the background I'm trying to give here is that um, when we're talking about the representation of child abuse, I don't think, Cheska, you can really speak for like how it is represented generally in fandom because you haven't read like a bunch of child abuse fics. But no. I wanted to talk to you about it anyway because I think you can talk about how it is typically represented in the media. And I wanted to ask you about that. Like, what do you notice about how child abuse tends to be represented in the media? Well, I think that it is, uh, ironically, often quite infantilizing, um, which given give, given the issue at hand is probably, yeah, more damaging than it needs to be. I think um, it's, so, it's part of a larger 
problem I think a lot of people are tackling at the moment in terms of trauma and our relationship to trauma in media, in writing, in narrative arcs. Because when you are like writing something or writing for screen or, you know, depicting any kind of story, you need a neat beginning, middle ending. You need things to be resolved. You need that climax where everything goes wrong. You need a character to have, you know, histories which come back to haunt them, etc. And I don't think, and often people talk in terms of like um, originating trauma um, and stuff like that when they talk about characters. Do you mean, sorry to interrupt, so you're talking about like the reason Batman is Batman is that his parents were killed? Yes, yes, exactly. So normally um, these 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 people have really neat um, I am the way I am because X happened to me as a child and as a result I'm messed up and as a result I have daddy issues or as a result I can't relate to people in this way or I have this insecurity and every time I see buttons it makes me think of the time I was abused with buttons and now I have PTSD whenever I think about buttons or whatever. <laughs> um, and my experience of PTSD is not that and I think I know a lot of people who would equally relate to the idea that it's actually a lot more muddy puddles of grief about it and it's and 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 it doesn't it doesn't crop up neatly you don't have a moment of catharsis and you also don't have an originating trauma so like for me um the the situation at hand went on for about 9 months to a year but there were so many instances both before and after where I'd say like equally shitty things happened that probably influenced me way more, but it's easier to be like, ah, yes, X person is messed up because of X very nicely labeled trauma. And I think so. I see what you're talking about when I, I read quite a lot of romance novels and you'll see, like, okay, I was just, I was just thinking about one I read the other day where like one person's trauma was that they were an ex heroin addict and the other person's trauma was that their husband had died. And it was just, it just felt like formulaic. And I think, what you're getting at and I agree with you is that uh what creates the the difficulties in a person's personality is mingled griefs lots of different mingled griefs and it's not as simple as this bad thing happened to me and that's now completely a hundred like color-coded the same reason that I'm sad now it's like a much yeah. more braided thing so like every few years so I had um quite a nasty eating disorder for about well 10 years do you ever recover who knows you get over it you move on life becomes more important but um, <laughs> not that that was more overly simplistic than it actually is but, um uh you know I think a lot of people are really into like putting a label on what what trauma incited this and people like being able to say like you know you got an eating disorder because you wanted to i don't know stay a child because you were abused and blah blah blah, blah. like that's so not the way i see it no one's brain is that logical that they're mm -hmm. like ah oh, yes and now i shall reason myself into a disorder through logic <laughs> uh, and you know i think it can lead to uncomfortable conversations certainly with me and my mom where she'll be like you know you blame me because of abuse or whatever um and i just don't see it that way because again like originating trauma isn't really a thing like i don't wake up in the morning and like think about my trauma mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um so and i just yeah i wanted to come back to something you said initially which was about um in the infantilization of child abuse and it's something you and i have talked about before which is um or, or that i've thought about before and when i was reading about this 
uh, I, I've been interested in this for a, a long time, partly because of my friendship with you. But I remember reading about this, about the fact that um, a lot of victims of child abuse, especially, um, feel really guilty about the fact that children are not entirely sexless beings. And yep. so there's this narrative of every single step of the way was just fucking torture. And that then means that anyone who didn't feel exactly that feels like dirty and guilty and disgusting yes and it's not talked about yeah it's it's not talked about because it's so dangerous to put it in fiction without someone telling you that you've just made immoral art and that you should not be making the art that you are currently making Mm -hmm. so like with me one of the things that was the most damaging was really falling into the, the almost like the lolita trap of being like no my the guy that did all the shit to me was like 56 Mm -hmm. but like i i got on with him really well like really well i thought he was really clever and really cool and we had lots of fun and i definitely was not blameless at all like do you know what i mean like i was well i think that's the wrong word but i know what you're saying yeah okay blameless is definitely basically i remember so like for context at home guys um i'd never spoken about this with anyone really in my life i hadn't even thought about it until me and alice were talking about a book i wanted to write a book with child abuse in it and i was like i literally went around i mean this is the arrogance of being 21 i went around like asking literally everyone i knew i was like does anyone want to talk to me about child abuse like anyone at all does anyone want to talk to me about child abuse it wasn't child abuse it was actually pedophiles you said the word pedophile yeah which is what because i i hadn't seen it as abuse but i had understood that the guy in question was interested in a prepubescent body mm-hmm. and so i was like oh this is interesting because alice is trying to write a complex pedophile character i can talk about a complex pedophile character mm-hmm. um and quite kind of like gung holy when <laughs> yeah i want to be this girl's friend let's talk more um <laughs> weird way to friend seduce me i mean great. <laughs> yeah. come talk to me about pedophiles it also worked be my friend it really um, worked it did actually really work um but i remember like completely bearing my soul to you in, in like on it a was nice a beautiful, summer afternoon it was a lovely college bedroom it was a different someone else's college bedroom and it was like i was wearing gorgeous. a outfit you looked fit as fuck what I a great did. what a great day go on <laughs> and i remembered like getting really embarrassed talking to you because i was like i don't want her to think that i'm some like child slut but at the same time like <laughs> i really need you to understand that i did actually welcome this um quite a lot um and 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 looking back on it like did i welcome it did i not idk i was 12 who knows if you can even do that then but there have been so many instances and and the answer by the way is a resounding no you can't you can't consent to this kind of thing at 12 um uh by any standards um i i went on to be a teacher and no 12 year olds oh my god looking back on it that's horrific Mm -hmm. um but i remember like you know lying in my bed knowing I should probably say something but not because also quite enjoying the attention and I think that 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 complexity is not shown in media because 
like guys try writing that scene like try writing that in free and direct speech whose head are you in are you in the child's head in which case you're writing something which could be misconstrued and that's scary as a writer that you might be you know misunderstood to like be encouraging pedophilia Mm -hmm. um some people will say um which I think we should probably come back to. Like, do we need this art in the world? You know, like, there's so many things you could write about. Why would you write something which could be misconstrued? Uh, or do you do what Lolita does and go in, you know, Humbert Humbert said? Uh, Can we, sorry, just pause, because uh, some of our listeners might not actually really have, they might kind of have heard <clears throat> of Lolita. So Lolita is a book by um, Nabokov, who wrote in his second language, which is fucking insane. Uh, and it is this really interesting um, kind of horrible book from the perspective of a paedophile as he like rapes, r- like ruins the life of this girl, Lolita, who yeah. uh, he thinks of as the love of his life. And it's it's this really fucked up book where, I mean, it's amazing. It's a very good book, but a lot of people... A lot of guys will read this book and completely misunderstood what Nabokov was doing. Because Nabokov is trying to make you realise that Humbert Humbert is a piece of shit. But we're in Humbert Humbert's head. So some people just don't understand that he's a piece of shit. Anyway, go on. So, like, things like um, Lolita learns. Uh, so so loads of shit happens. Humbert Humber and Lolita end up kind of on the road together. Um, and Lolita learns how to manipulate him and she puts up with quite a lot um and flirts with him to his perception we don't know whether she does or not really because you know we're looking through the eyes of a pedophile um but she really does get her way by playing a role um and i think it raises you know a lot of people will be like oh you shouldn't do that because blah 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 insert i don't even really understand their argument here but for me i read it and felt seen because that's what people do in difficult situations like you don't if you've got an abusive boss you don't do what you do in the movies and go like yeah well you know what i'm not being treated like this and storm Mm -hmm. out because because you need your money and you need a house and you need to pay your rent or whatever like you 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 make a situation work for you and i think it's finding agency in those spaces wherever you can. Um, and also recognising the power and, and that that power that you feel on the days when things are good is incredibly addictive and heady. Mm-hmm. I, I think about the fact that... Um, so when I was a young teenager, I was, I was uh, very troubled and I was always throwing myself at older men and I partly think that part of the reason that nothing bad in that sense ever really happened to me is as simple as I wasn't very pretty uh and um, I think if I had been true <laughs> okay but I think if I had been very beautiful I think that that's a... I think it's a Tina Fey has this line where she says god grant me a daughter who's ugly until she's 17 I'm like, <laughs> that's true anyway but um I think about okay I actually wanted to talk about this scene in uh the new Netflix babysitters club have you seen it I haven't. I'm sorry. Um, it's adorable. It's so wholesome and heartwarming. And it's actually my sister produced it. So I am also family loyalty to this show. But um, there's this amazing scene in it, which I, when I watched it, I realized it was something I hadn't seen anywhere else. And I was like, just so grateful to my sister for putting it in there. Uh, basically, there's this girl called Stacy. And it's an episode called Boy Crazy Stacy. And Stacy is like 12 or 13. And she is. Uh, on holiday at the beach 
And there's this like 18 or 19 year old lifesaver who kind of sits in the lifesaving chair and he's really fucking hot. And she goes over and she flirts with him a lot. Like the kind of flirting I used to do with the guy who worked at Hot Topic. And um, <laughs> he he's sweet to her, right? He says something like, hey, cutie. And she goes home and she's like, I'm in. He called me a cutie. Like, <laughs> he's going to... He's going to fuck me. I'm so excited. Right. I mean, she doesn't say fuck me, but like her, she wants to go out with him. She wants to do something sexual with him. Right. And then later in the show, in the episode, um, this guy's girlfriend shows up and she's like an age appropriate, hot 18 year old. And like, I think there's a moment where he's like, oh, yeah, this girl's a crush on me. And she overhears it and she feels incredibly humiliated. But there was something about that moment which I felt just doesn't get shown very much which is the the kind of um the young teenage girl sexual aggressor which is a thing right because young teenage girls are thinking about sex and yeah what I liked about that moment is that he's sweet to her but is obviously not interested and I think about the amount of times I threw myself at older dudes when I was younger and they just were like hey this is not going to happen because you're too young for me and I think that all it would have taken would have been one of them to be like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And then I would have been really fucked up about it. And I would have completely felt to blame. But I wasn't to mm. blame. All of those guys who said we can't do anything because you're too young were right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think kind of uh, relating it to Teenage Wasteland, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about in more detail. The funky thing about child abuse <laughs> is that it's not just a sexual act there are people that i know who have been kind of quote-unquote sexually abused without ever being touched you know mm-hmm. um and it's not necessarily again coming back to this idea of like root of trauma one night where something happens or you know ex- you should touch me that is not always the bit which messes you up the most mm-hmm. um if we're like looking at the spectrum of messed up mm-hmm. and quite often um things like what adelaide in teenage wasteland shows of um being extremely extremely reliant on feeling like she's done the right thing for someone and second third fourth fifth sixth guessing what someone's thinking about her at any given time um you know needing to feel needed needing you know to know that someone else um is caring about them like all of these like really intricate messy nuanced interpersonal relationship things are the things which now I look at and I'm like ah interesting that's probably been influenced by a abusive dynamic that went on for a long time rather Mm. than something acute i think that was something i wanted to do with adelaide uh and draco and there's this scene in teenage wasteland or like this moment which i actually i i I was inspired by a different fic which was um i think i'm going to recommend uh it is called let me find it it's a fic it's not a dreary fic it is a um captive prince fic uh and It's called There Are Things Unbearable by Vans. Uh, And one of the things I really love about fan fiction is that um, there are so many fics that are essentially just written as therapy. And it is fascinating to me to like watch someone's therapy fic. Um, And Mm. this this was a very much a therapy fic. It was this person who was like, I'm going through some really hard times. I'm I'm trying to work out my feelings about it. Uh, And so here is this like 120,000 word fic about um, child abuse. And... um, 
And it was definitely very influential. I was reading a lot of Captive Prince fic when I was writing Teenage Wasteland. And um, in the Captive Prince fandom, there's this relationship between a Draco-esque character called Laurent and this kind of like, he kind of ends up sort of adopting this teenage boy who his uncle was uh, raping. Um, Mm. And his uncle was also abusing him, right? And they had this kind of competitive relationship whereby, you know, the younger boy is the guy who replaced Laurent when he got older. But this fic is... Mm. um, incredible and it isn't finished um it's it's 12 out of 14 chapters and the author was like i can't finish this it was helping me for a while and now i'm i'm feeling better and i think if i go back into this place i'm going to feel worse so this is it this is where the fic ends and so it's 120,000 words unfinished and i still think it's worth reading because it's so fucking good and it is just this incredibly thoughtful exploration of how laurent feels right he's like 22 or something and he's never spoken about the abuse even though his uncle continued to abuse people. So he's like, am I responsible? But he just kind of felt like he couldn't speak about it. But anyway, there's this scene in the fic where Laurent and Nikkeis is the character um, had this conversation where Nikkeis is like, he says something, and I pretty much took it directly for um, Teenage Wasteland. Nikkeis says something like, he saved me. And Laurent's like, I know, yeah, me too. Um, and I wanted to have that dynamic with Adelaide and with Draco where both of them feel like this uncomfortable gratitude to mm. Tertius because he did. He, you know, he rescued both of them. They really needed to be helped and he helped them. So that's what's so uncomfortable is that you can't completely discount it. And I, I think part mm. of that also was inspired by what you have told me about how you felt like there were things you fundamentally like learnt about yourself through uh, yes, this man. I think I think an abusive relationship is as much an addiction, or can be seen through the lens of addiction, as um, you know heroin or uh, an eating disorder or alcoholism or gambling. It's like it. All of these addictions, be they interpersonal or not, do serve you in some way. There are good things about them. No one has something which is completely destroying their life that they perpetuate in some way even if it's only not by leaving that doesn't in some way serve them however small i lie there are probably some circumstances where that happens i am privileged enough that i've never been in one mm-hmm. um and you know uh, i also think that, it can get it it can like escalate to so it can start off in one way and then escalate to definitely but those those addictions do serve you in some way, in the same way that these relationships, when they're good, feel incredible. Mm. And also you might feel really indebted to them. Mm-hmm. Like it's that it's that feeling of guilt. It's the same feeling like most people have at some point gone back to someone else's house or something or had someone come back to theirs. And there's that moment of like, well, maybe you don't want to sleep with them, but they're here and there's like a guilt of, yeah. well I've certainly felt that guilt of well now I have to sleep with you yeah because you've made the effort to come here mm-hmm. and I'm being a bad host if I don't let you into my <laughs> vagina um like like here would you like a glass of water and maybe a blowjob um <laughs> and it's like I don't know there's the guilt of indebtedness yeah to them and I think i I have learned through being with someone who is now quite well adjusted and accommodating that my understanding of what I owe people with um, favours is is not necessarily <laughs> as um, healthy as you might think. 
I had a friend who once told me that her mother had very seriously told her when she was like 15. She was like, you never need to sleep with someone because they bought you a drink. And I know that sounds simple, but like, fuck, that is good advice. That's true. And I think when you're, especially when you're a young person, it's so hard to remember that. You're like, they bought me a drink, an expensive one. (laughs) No, entirely. I remember being in Spain when I was 15 um why we all were allowed to go on a gal's trip to spain alone um <laughs> i really don't know but 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 we did um, it was me and a couple of girlfriends and um we would go out every night and get drunk and flirt with boys and i was really good at flirting with boys because i was really experienced with boys <laughs> because <laughs> i was a little yeah um so i was the one that was like all bravado like yeah well i can sleep with them all because i've lost my virginity ages ago guys so, oh, no. you know. oh yeah um and i uh you know got bought quite a lot of drinks by a guy um and felt indebted to him uh he took me back to his uh kind of you know asked if we could do it without a condom i felt indebted to him because he bought me lots of drinks oh so my god, yeah tell of me. course we could oh my god chaska um oh yeah no uh and then he kicked me out straight afterwards and i didn't know where i was and had to like wander home like <sighs> with some guys like you know it was yeah it was really unpleasant and then the next night but i got really praised for it by all my friends and they were all like oh you're a lad and i was <laughs> like i oh, thank you very much i didn't cry in my bed and then um <laughs> the following night um chatted up the like I, I i the 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 barman had been buying like had been giving me loads of free drinks basically and being like woo, woo, woo and he was really attractive um and then i felt indebted to him so then I, like so then when he was like well you should probably make out with me now i was like yeah you're right i probably should um and like my my life until about 20 years old was just that on repeat of just feeling like i owed people what they wanted so uh, one thing I think I did that was not perfect in this fic that I uh, I didn't really know how not to do it is that I was like, I was Googling around. I was like, how do you make sure you don't um, kind of do an irresponsible portrayal of uh, domestic abuse? Because really, uh, although Adelaide obviously is kind of the heart of the fic, Draco is also in a domestic uh, abusive relationship. Um, Draco and- is just as abused as Adelaide. I think it's beautiful. Not beautiful. That's a horrible way of saying it because I don't want to glorify anything. I think it's. I think the way that Draco's abuse comes out is masterful. I really like it. Uh, go on, tell me more. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just think you really see the um, the kind of the shock waves come through in the way that Draco initially in his relationship with Harry has those same checks and balances of like, if I preempt everything that could go wrong, if I am placing, I'm placing really, really large value on things that to someone who hasn't experienced that kind of abusive relationship, like would never even consider putting that value on. So for example, like it's something I noticed me doing and have had to like work out of with my girlfriend of like, Let's take a Draco example of going to the grocery store and spending too long and getting the wrong bananas. Like, and then like being so scared about that that they go to seven grocery shops and then after all that it still wasn't the right fucking bananas. <laughs> like that and 
like the guilt that comes with that then meaning that when you're in a relationship you're very you place lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of effort to like get them exactly the right thing and they never really notice but it's really really important to you and you get really really scared that they're going to hate you forever if you don't do you know what i mean is yeah. that those kind of shockwaves i saw in both of them and i thought that was really nice um thank you yeah uh so the thing that i think i didn't I didn't know how to avoid falling into this pitfall, which is that one of the problems with the way that domestic abuse is portrayed in the media is that it tends to, for narrative reasons, be pitched as something that is inescapable. Like you're in the situation where you can't, you don't feel like you can escape. And also in a narrative sense, you kind of can't escape. And so something that is a problem with the way the media portrays domestic abuse is that there's often a scene in which someone tries to get help and then the help is shit. And so then they go back to the the abusive relationship. And the problem with that, Mm. obviously, is that if you're in a domestic abusive, a domestically abusive relationship and you watch that, you're going to go, oh shit, like there's no point in me calling the helpline number because this show has shown me that the helpline number is useless. So I I wanted to avoid that, but I didn't really know how to. And I, you know, I have this scene where Draco goes to like a shelter, a muggle shelter. And I don't think it's unrealistic that as like a wizard, he would feel completely like it's just there's so many levels of cultural disconnect um, Mm. that I think it would make it very difficult because I think it's the equivalent of being in an abusive relationship in a foreign country where you don't really speak the language. I think that's how difficult it would be for Draco to get out. But I felt a little bad about that because, you know, I I didn't, you don't want to imply that, that the structures in place are not good enough. I mean, I'm sure they're not good enough, but they, they, you're not, you're not completely trapped forever. There are, there are people who want to help you. There are definitely, I think, um, so everyone will have a different relationship with different bodies that have been helpful or not helpful. The only one that I've had any, um, and I probably won't go into massive detail about this, but like the only one I've had run-ins with has been like the Met Police. Um, And they were like the least helpful people in the whole world. Like to the point of, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like fully like victim blaming level crazy shit. Like it was mad. Like just just ridiculously unhelpful um but they can only do so much i think that that's the bottom line is like you you look at these services whatever they are and go ah that will be the saving grace that'll be the thing which gets me out and on my feet again and and it's the same i've worked quite a lot with homeless charities um and there's this kind of idea that if only we could have the perfect homeless charity that could get people off the streets then they'd never have to go back to the streets um and that'll be magic all you can do is give people a certain amount of support but fundamentally one of the most trapping things about abusive relationships is that emotional tie is the mental the mind forged manacles so to speak to you know like of of that relationship is mind forged manacles a quotation yes it is from blake yes it is okay just wanted to check Go on. <laughs> um I'm not, I'm not just a poetic genius um, <laughs> no it's from london it's really good guys go check it out um yeah i think it's the fact that as as draco goes out he's like wondering if actually 
he can make it by himself in the first place and stuff. Um, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, I think it, so much of this is about, you know, if you don't have like, okay, thinking about you, right. And how you said that this, there was this sense of like someone paying you so much attention. And I wonder whether if you had been being lavished with the right kind of attention, whether that that new source of attention would have been less seductive maybe absolutely i think that so again you look at a massive trend in abusive relationships is um being cut off from other people other support networks that care about you um that you could talk to who would go hi you do realize this is fucked up don't you and you deserve better like to the point where when I've been in relationships subsequently, which maybe haven't been that healthy, like they haven't been like crazy abusive, but they've probably been like not the best. I have loads of really amazing friends around me who go, hey, Cheska, that's probably not a good idea because of X, Y, Z. Uh, have you seen it in this way? Or, hey, you can come stay at mine. Or, mm-hmm. you know, let's let's help draft this text together. Do you know what I mean? And I think one thing that helps with the Draco situation is or rather hinders, is that he's so alone in the world. They look at the world and they don't have another fucking soul to go to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of people get to in the point where like their abusive relationship has cut off all their ties. They don't have as many ties to like the external world. Gaslighting's a thing. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) and suddenly get to the point where it makes complete sense that even with the best help in the world, you wouldn't be able to get out. Uh, I know most people at this point do know what gaslighting is, but I'll just explain, which is that it comes actually from a film from like the 1940s or something about this woman who's called, it's called Gaslight, I think. And it's a really great film. Uh, This woman starts dating this man who just, he starts making the lamps in her house flicker. And she's like, why are the lamps in our house flickering? And he's like, they're not flickering. And she's like, I swear they're flickering. And he's like, are you, do you need to see a doctor? Like they're not flickering. And she just, he just tries to drive her crazy. And, um, that's where we get the term gaslighting means someone making you doubt your own reality right and it's a crucial part of any abusive relationship yeah they they often start with like you know you always do x or have you noticed you always do y kind of statements which if you tell someone that enough like it's almost impossible to not believe it because it's someone else's observations of something that you wouldn't be aware of because why would you be aware of this trend in your behavior? And so you start thinking of yourself as that kind of person. So like if someone repeatedly tells you that you've invited attention and you get rewarded for it or punished for it accordingly, like you just are that kind of person. You do just believe that's a thing you do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I uh, one of the other fics I read that I felt was helpful when I was writing Teenage Wasteland is a fic called uh, "Now My Neck Is Wide Open" (parentheses begging for a fist around it) by Lady Slytherin, uh, which is, by the way, the most typical like fandom structure of. T- I love, I love, I love how in fandom you'll have these fics that have these just like intensely poetic with parentheses and like weird punctuation titles that Mm. just would never make it through like ordinary publishing and I think it's so fun that they get to make it out in fandom (laughs) so this writer um Lady Slytherin uh had got out of an abusive relationship maybe like five or six years before they wrote this fic and uh they also had an autistic child and like they were dealing with how to kind of escape this 
abusive relationship with their child and it was super complicated. Yikes. Yeah. And then they write this story. And this is what I find so kind of amazing about Drary is that, as I said, these therapy fix, these fix where it's just someone being like, I, I, you know, I'm not writing this for money. I'm not writing this for fame or, or to be published. I'm writing this just because I need to write this. And then the, I get to read that. I mean, it feels like such a privilege being allowed to sit in on someone's like vulnerability and their growth. And it's just kind of insane. Um, Anyway, so the way it was written, the the premise is um, after the war, Harry gets into an abusive relationship and um, it's with this guy who seems great at first. And then he kind of slowly just kind of cuts Harry off from all of his friends. And um, then what happens is when they're going to they're gonna get married and Draco Malfoy is a journalist who comes to do like several interviews about their relationship for like a massive magazine spread. And mm. he picks up on what's going on and basically offers Harry lots of options and makes sure that he can escape. But he doesn't like rescue him. He just kind of is like, look, these are your options. I am here. You can, I, I know what's going on. But what was, I thought so interesting about this particular fic is that the kind of section divides all had a picture, a drawing of a arm, like a, a white person's arm. And the first bruise shows up on the arm really early on in Harry's relationship with this guy because I can't remember what it was it was something like Harry wanted to go to Hermione's birthday party and on the day when he was about to leave the door the boyfriend is like but you said you would help me with my job today and Harry's like did I but it's Hermione's birthday and the boyfriend's like I can't believe you're being so selfish as to renege on your responsibilities to me and Harry's like oh uh okay yeah I'll just I'll, I'll not go and then at the end of that section there's a bruise on the arm and I bet but I made up that um incident because I read this a while ago but it was something like that um and the idea that the author explains is that we think that abuse begins with the first punch but it's not at all that right by the time I love that so much I need to read this fic yeah I'll send it to you I (laughs) mean this is this is I think this is like the crucial thing that really gets me and that I will kind of batter into people's minds until the <laughs> poor choice of words jessica <laughs> um uh until the cows come home which is yeah like that thing of sexual abuse doesn't start when someone touches you sexual abuse doesn't it, it is 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 a is a dynamic it's what's said it's it's things that are said to other people about you it's the way that you are made to view yourself as a sexual body when you are too young to really fully know what that is yet and domestic violence is that same thing it's the threat of violence is the fact that you're terrified of walking upstairs too loudly or putting something in the fridge wrong Mm. or drinking from the tap after 11 p.m or whatever all of that shit is the stuff that defines an abusive relationship yeah Um, and i think that the media because especially with something like screenplays like Alice, I know that you write for screen a bit as well. Um, as as someone who writes for screen, can confirm like you need to be able to, in two lines, describe a piece of action which tells someone what's going on um, in a way which is snappy and quick and gets across lots of information. It's much harder to show a really, really, really nuanced abusive relationship when it's one character out of seven in a series. So yeah. you just do the shorthand. You show the thing that's easy and that's always the physical thing. Um, but I 
really need to read this fic yeah no it's it, clearly uh, really good it's it's really i think it taught me a lot because it, it it was just clearly written by someone who has thought a lot about the the responsible and irresponsible ways you can portray these relationships and they had thought a lot about um like what draco can do to help and there's this whole part of the fic where harry is going to leave and then doesn't and draco is frustrated but in, he doesn't ever and like they're sleeping together at this point like they're together and like draco his heart is on the line and yet he's still forgiving of it and i think that that's a really important part of this fic is this this mm. um you know something that i th- i think is important the problem is if you do that if you if you insistently say you need to get out you need to get out that person is not going to see you as someone they can talk to about what they're going through because they think you think they're an idiot yeah and i think there are only so many times you can be told get out and not do it before you just stop telling them because otherwise it's you're just actively not taking their advice yeah so i think it's important if you have someone who's an abusive relationship in your life to i I know it's tempting to just try and force them out of the relationship but i i feel as if what's more important is remaining an open bridge I also think that uh, on a really, really basic level, things you can do um, in any situation is, is, as I said, keeping those lines of communication open between friends, making sure that that person is not isolated because uh, in, in however that can be, so like it could be supportive to be around them more um, so that they're not alone with their partner as much or you know, if something's going to be a particularly stressful situation, make sure you're, you offer that you can be there and that you're talking to them still, even if it's about other stuff, just making sure they're not getting to the point where they don't have anyone that they can turn to because they haven't spoken to any of their friends in three months mm-hmm. and actually they can't reach out to anyone. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's... I think that's what you've got to do. But I mean, like, I'm not an expert on it, but that feels right to me. Um, I Have you seen Big Little Lies? No. So I don't know for sure. Like, I don't know what the kind of um, think pieces have been saying on the portrayal of domestic abuse in Big Little Lies. Uh, so possibly I'm missing some problematic elements as possible. But what I liked about it is that um, Nicole Kidman is in a domestic uh, abuse relationship and for the first like two episodes you don't know that all you know is that she's in this perfect relationship her boyfriend is fucking i mean not boyfriend her husband is incredibly hot he's a great dad they live in this fabulous house everyone's like oh my god you guys have the best sex (laughs) and she's just like i know and you're just like jealous of it right it looks so romantic and then you kind of get a bit closer into the relationship and you realize that that extreme romance is her husband like feeling guilty after he's hit her right and Mm. so then it kind of unpacks that and I thought what that did well was that you kind of understood why she was so unwilling to leave because the good times were so good and I think by showing the good times first that reflects the experience that people in these relationships actually go through which is that they don't it's not like on your first date they punch you in the face and you're like I must have more right like it it, (laughs) that's not how it goes (laughs) yeah Exactly. And also like, you know, um, things I enjoyed about uh, Teenage Wasteland portrayal of it. Um, Adelaide does, doesn't necessarily 
know well she she can't know what another relationship is like of that intensity at that point and there are things about that relationship that she really likes um even really near the end like when she's dating sebastian mm-hmm. um hashtag spoilers um she finds <laughs> another guy and he's her age um i think they've probably listened weedy. yeah oh yeah so <laughs> he feels a bit weedy to her and i quite liked that because it was like ah like yeah it's not gonna be the same what advice would you give to someone writing a child abuse fic is there anything that you would tell them to avoid Yes, yes. My main thing is avoid trauma porn. Um, This is a shorthand that I've come up with for um, things which glamorize trauma. And I think it's really, really frustrating to see the amount of times where um, certain pasts are used as shorthand for and this is why this person is fucked up and it's kind of weirdly beautiful and broken so like normally the girl like will cry tears which potentially have glitter in them like outside <laughs> of a window and are cured by someone's magic dick um <laughs> that's like the extreme are we thinking um, is this effie from skins yes yes it is correct um uh, effie from skins is an excellent example of the glamorization of trauma um she's got a she's got a kind of fucked up vibe she like snorts cocaine and sadness and (laughs) you know it's really um even to me being really aware of all of these traits it's so seductive it's so seductive i want to be effie from skins oh my god everyone wanted to be effie from skins i come across on like you know this is gonna make me sound like dated and sad but like on my (laughs) facebook thing you know it's like 10 years ago you said this on your status my status are like oh my god feeling surfy from skins right now and it's like a picture of me in my screen uniform like smoking that's so embarrassing for you i can't believe i love it um yeah exactly it's no i Um, I, when i watched skins i spent i spent like two weeks imitating cassie's voice because cassie speaks and she goes like wow that's amazing yeah and, and she, she, there's there's that bit by the lockers where she's like, I didn't eat for three weeks so that I could be beautiful for you. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. I want to have an eating disorder just like her. Um, yeah. But it's really seductive and it's it's so like sexy. And how I can, think so I, I obviously, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but I just, I obviously have the same feeling of you, which is that I fucking do love trauma porn. I love it. So it's like impossible for me to avoid it. And I think frankly, all of my fix have so much trauma in them because of that, that instinct. Uh, how but, do you have, av- yes, go on. So what, this is the crux of it for me. What are you attracted to? Because I think that quite often what we're actually attracted to is the thing which gets me going in kink, which is vulnerability mm-hmm. and someone who has a lot of walls and is quite guarded and wants to be strong constantly, but fundamentally has some insecurities, finally allowing themselves to be held by someone else and who can say, I've got you, don't worry. Um, for the next hour, you don't have to like worry about anything and uh, you're safe. And then through a kind of magical power of healing romance and kind of soft size, someone feels better and over time they heal 
and like we're di- we're addicted to that cycle. You're right. It's hurt comfort is the, the hashtag. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Hurt comfort. It's that thing of it's the moments where I, you know, I have obsessively done the uh, the Galapalidia fanfic uh, oeuvre, and it's all the moments <laughs> where um, Draco goes very still and um you know like feels harry being secure uh, around him and 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 draco's really vulnerable like those moments are hot and beautiful and addictive like regardless of the trauma that informs them Uh, something that i've thought about a lot as i got older is um one of my friends said this she said and this is a fucking sad statement that i'm about to say so take it with a grain of salt uh she said when you're a teenager it's cool and glamorous and attractive and special to be fucked up. But when you're an adult, it's cool and special and glamorous to not be fucked up. Because by the time you're like 30 or whatever, uh, most people have had something bad go wrong. You meet some people once in a while who like just haven't really had anything go wrong. And they do have this kind of like halo around them. They're just like, Mm. they're just so buoyant. Uh, And it's Mm. true that I think it's a transition that you make at some point. And for me, it was around university. I remember this feeling of like when I was a teenager and I was troubled. Paradoxically, even though I was very lonely, I always felt as if I would have no problem finding someone to talk to about my problems because I knew that the other teenagers would find them sort of fascinating. And so... Mm. I, you know, I had lots of people to talk to about my problems because people would be like, oh yeah, go on, tell me more. This is so interesting. It's like being in a book. And then when I was in university and I was depressed and I suddenly realized that everyone was depressed and uh, no one had time and there wasn't anyone I could talk to because it wasn't interesting. And as an adult, often your traumas aren't interesting, but there's still a secret teenager in us who thinks they ought to be, if that makes sense. I think it's, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, exactly right. I think I think crucially with these with with the kind of fucked up quote unquote identity in media it's cool because it's set at the point in the narrative where um things are accelerating to a climax um it's also the crucial um kind of complication in the narrative so it is the reason why the story is happening in the first place and why we're seeing it so of course it's exciting um and there is a natural resolution around the 45 to 50 minute mark (laughs) or if it's a series there's a resolution around the seventh episode of eight do you know what i mean like you you expect resolution and in real life unfortunately if you've got trauma and you're fucked up unless you put in significant amounts of work to stop being fucked up no one's going to stop you being fucked up for you and that kind of healing moment doesn't necessarily come and it's so it just transitions from being edgy racing and cool in the climactic point of the film to just being a bit like sad Ex- exhausting right yeah. just tiring yeah um and and unsatisfying because there isn't that that comfort part of the hurt. And I think when when we think of trauma within narrative, you're exactly right. We're thinking of it for narrative purposes. And in fact, in real life, it's not how it goes. And I, so I think, yeah. So it's asking, go on. Sorry. No, no, no. So I think in relation to, uh, if you are thinking of writing a fic with, with a child abuse narrative in it, you need to be thinking about what that child abuse narrative does for your fic and why you're using it are you using it as a shorthand for something um are you using it because it's a a sexy edgy form of abuse um how are you gonna you know portray 
the 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 dynamic is it going to be nuanced or is it going to be something where like is it a really crucial part of the story or is it going to be something where like we hear about it she was fucked up and she was fucked up so that she can be healed um and is there something else that's more interesting that you could replace it with um that will do the same thing i think that that's turning out to be the case with all of these effects were like this is what blue said i remember in our conversation about exposure you know they were like why do you want to write a sex worker fic like examine that impulse figure out what it is you want to do and whether sex worker draco is the best method for exploring what you're trying to talk about um one rule i have for myself in my writing is that i don't write about sexual abuse unless the fic is going to be about sexual abuse because Mm. it's especially in romance um not just in fic, but just like in romance generally, it's so easy to use um, sexual abuse as, as a shorthand for something that's going to have you be rescued. So for instance, in Twilight, uh, there's that scene in the first Twilight where Ugh. Bella is like wandering through a bad part of town and then some, you know, creepy men come up to her and like, we're all gonna attack you. And she's like, oh no. And then Edward shows up and is like, back off. And they're like, fuck, he's a vampire. And they run away. And that <laughs> whole scene is just in there so that Edward can save her, right? And there's, she doesn't, her, she's so over that instantly. She gets in the car and she's like, wow, you, you really freaked them out. She's over it. Like, she was almost just gang raped. She doesn't even care. <laughs> she's fine. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's using sexual assault as a narrative device. And I try to avoid that. But in something like Teenage Wasteland, it entirely informs the relationship that Draco and Adelaide have. It, it, it is a shared identity almost within them because they both feel like they are not alone in their guilt. <laughs> like someone else gets it. Yeah. Um, well, it isn't. And, sorry. It is basically a thick about sexual abuse, I think. Oh, I yeah. Mean, entirely. Like the whole thing is. So, yeah, that 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 that, that makes sense. Um, I just wanted to mention this fic that I think everyone eventually comes across if they're in Drowry long enough. Uh, and I can't remember. I think it's just called Whore. And it's by, no huh. one knows. It was, it was um, abandoned. You know, it's, you can kind of um, abandon fics. You can like undo your account. And then it just says that it's by orphan account. And it's this fic. That, and I'm like, I feel mixed up about the, the existence of this fic. Because one of the things I like about fandom is that there's some seriously fucked up things in there. And I think that it's nice that people have a place where they can really go deep into the dark underbellies of their psyches but this fic is just about everyone who's ever had like every single person in the canon sexually assaulting harry like it just it starts with him being like i think the dursleys are like selling him out as a sex slave and then he gets rescued by dumbledore and then dumbledore's like you know what you're good at being sold as a sex slave and you're just like why is this happening like what is going on here it's just the most insane fic uh and it has loads and loads of comments which are all just people being like why have you done this uh and i don't know why it was written i think it's interesting that it was written so i don't know why they wrote whore but (laughs) um i did when i was about 14 find on a kind of uh much less developed internet than today's internet um a serial kind of fic of sorts it wasn't a fanfic but it was just someone writing a really friggin messed up blog um about a girl who was basically a massive slut and got gang raped regularly by people and she'd go around to people's houses with really large 
dicks and they do stuff. It wasn't porn because it was all like really, really messed up, like sad things. It was like a really horrible drama right. that just kept getting worse. And you always thought maybe, maybe this girl is going to be okay now. And she never was. It just would be another gang rape and so she'd never learn. Um, here's my here's my theory on this. Uh, I, I when I was a troubled teenager, wrote um, uh, a novel that just covered all the forms of trauma that are possible to have, right? It was just yes. like the most fucking extra thing. And I think that when you're young and you're trying to figure out your own feelings, uh, and especially if you have feelings that are very upsetting and distressing and disturbing, uh, you don't have the tools to write about them subtly. And so instead no. you go for the big guns. And I think that maybe the secret to why both these stories were written is that they were written by distressed teenagers who were like, I think this explains how I feel. Mm. and they just were using clumsy tools to talk about very nuanced emotions this is the thing i think it's the difference between a hammer and a, and, and a chisel when mm. it comes to sculpting out the story you want to make about abuse because if you have someone with um guilt complex uh victim complexities etc and you want to explore that yes abuse is definitely one of the ways you can do that but what kind of abuse do you want? Like, like, let's not just hit it over the head with a hammer and like say, yeah, they were, they were, you know, fucked a bit as a kid. Like, it, like, let's let's unpick what that daily routine was for them, and where their hangups are gonna lie. Uh, another person uh, whose fic I would recommend, and I've done, I've recommended them before, is A Big Black Sky by Alex Meg. And Alex Meg actually um, very kindly. Uh, beta red teenage wasteland because a big black sky is about uh draco in an abusive relationship and he has a son with his abuser and then he escapes mm. and one of the things i loved about this fic uh is that that there, there is quite a, there's you know obviously there's it's a fairly graphic depiction of of abuse but actually uh, alex meg doesn't doesn't go for drama unless it needs it like it for instance, at one point, the the husband finds Draco after he's escaped. And I was expecting it to be this whole, like, he'll drag him into a house and they'll get into a fight and blah, blah, blah. But instead, it wasn't anything like that. He kind of corners him in a shop and then someone comes along and helps him out. And then we kind of don't really hear from him again. Um, oh, that's beautiful. That's perfect. Yeah, it's just, and it's just as frightening, right? Like, why oh, does yeah. it, you know, it doesn't have to be that violent for it to be frightening. No, and I think I think it's often... So I, um, like personal anecdote, um, I remember when I was at uni, I got a LinkedIn request. Oh, I from, remember this incident. Yeah. From the guy that was, was a, was a dirty little toe rag when I was younger. Um, <laughs> light web. Yeah. It um, makes it sound as if he was just like, a bit, he <laughs> like just, picked, we just romped in fields. He picked his um, nose near you. Yeah, That's he did. Yeah. Like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make so many inappropriate jokes. Now. I'm just like, no, don't go there. Um, uh, see, my impulse is to make comedy about it. Um, and where was that? He he LinkedIn friended you. Oh, yes, he sent me a LinkedIn request. That is the most innocuous thing in the world. Like, no one has ever managed to hurt anyone through LinkedIn except through microaggressions. Yes. and yeah. It sent me down a spiral. No, I remember. It was really was, upsetting. 
because I was so messed up because I was like, I'm not, I'm not free. I don't well, know where this person is. Like he was watching you. That was what was fucked up about it. Is that it felt like he was watching you? Yeah, because that I think that the, the uh, a, a thing about um, that a lot of people talk about with abuse, whatever kind there are, you know, a, a plethora, um, is this kind of internalized gaze of someone else. This this idea that you see yourself through your own eyes, but you also see yourself constantly through someone else's eyes because their eyes are more important than yours um and it's this i it it, it was terrifying that that was still there like Mm. you were still being viewed um and you felt really out of control and so i think that again it's it's that issue of nuances now i guess when you're writing something of of saying is it going to be a massive blow up because that's what you need in the narrative or actually is it just reminding that person that they're still being surveilled in a bookshop yeah yeah that's sick and I think I think you're you're so right in that that is all the drama that's needed. And I and I think that sort of especially young writers or writers who haven't um you know given a, a huge amount of thought to this are very likely to be like okay well to make to make the reader understand that this person is still troubled by this relationship I need to have the person break into the house and like beat give them a black eye. And it's like no you don't. They can just send you a LinkedIn request. That's fucked up. Like that is that's it is so dramatic in itself it doesn't need drama lent to it mm. i think that's how i feel um god what a toe rag <laughs> 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 my my linkedin story is that um when i first got linkedin shortly after a big heartbreaking breakup um I <laughs> didn't realize that every time you check someone's LinkedIn, it sends them an email being like, so-and-so has looked at your LinkedIn. And I wow. used my ex-boyfriend's, like my recent ex-boyfriend's page because he was just like a very put together person. He like knew his shit. And I was like, I'm sure he has a great LinkedIn page. I'll just kind of copy his. But this meant that I checked his LinkedIn page a, a lot, a lot. And then I slowly started to realize that he must have been getting like 12 emails about me looking at his page. And I was just like, this is embarrassing that that is embarrassing (laughs) 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 i I care about enough uh, i care about you enough to tell you that that is yeah yeah. you're always there for me uh okay so let's talk a little bit about the fic more specifically so i wanted to just quickly talk about tertius and like what i was trying to do with tertius uh i just wanted and i think we've we've already mentioned this i just wanted to make him someone who there's a reason that draco actually does like him and mm. and I wanted to, yeah, make it so that it's like, you know, Draco has this craving for family. And Tertius does act like his family like 45% of the time, 30% of the time eventually. But the fact that that's there is the reason that he's so, um, you know, sinister, really. You know, it, I by think, virtue I think... of not being a monster. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I just, um, uh, this this might not end up being relevant, but, uh, you know, offer in its relevancy or lack thereof. I think that the notion of family um, being uh, a kind of bond is something which lends itself (laughs) disturbingly well to quite abusive or unequal uh, dynamics of obligation and guilt. in work relationships as well as in um kind of emotional ones um and one of the things that actually reading uh this fic made me think about 
was the fact that I very recently had uh, a producer, obviously of anonymity, uh, basically for a long time has been saying to me and a writing partner of mine, you know, oh, um, yeah, we're family, we're family. We, we, you know, we help each other out. We're family, we're family. But that means that then when you disagree with them or they don't treat you as well as they should or they go back on a promise or they renege on a contract or whatever there's always this understanding of like yeah but we're family so yeah i I, should put up with this it's definitely uh it can be misused uh and i i have that in the thick where um they don't talk about money because they're family and it's like exactly that's what made me think of it i was like (laughs) oh i need to start analyzing my relationships yeah (laughs) So there's this book called Such a Fun Age uh, by Kylie Reed, uh, which I think was nominated for a booker, maybe even won the booker, whatever. It was, it did really well. Uh, and Such a Fun Age um, is about the relationship between a black nanny and her white employer. And uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting about this book is that the white employer is just really, really focused on trying to be friends with her nanny. And the book basically says, like, the way to be a good employer is to pay your pay your people well enough and, like, give them sick leave. Like, the way to be a good employer is not to be nice to them. That's not, yeah. the, that's not the key. That's not the secret. And so I think what you're saying about um, people who use, like, family as this, like, see, because we're family. It's like, yeah, but I don't want you to be my family. I want you to be my, my work partner and to treat me well within a work sphere. But it's but it's establishing that dynamic which says that no matter what we stick together or no matter what we've always got each other's backs or no matter what I I love you unconditionally so you need to love me unconditionally when I fuck up and I think that the the moments when Tertius is really very sorry um I I recognize that feeling that comes for and I and I think it is something that a lot of people will be able to understand even if they've never been in a quote-unquote abusive relationship oh <laughs> scary like do you know what i mean like that there's a more sliding scale than i think a lot of people think yeah um of someone doing something bad apologizing feeling really guilty and looking really sad and kind of upset and stuff and like you almost feel like embarrassed slash like guilty that you've made them feel this bad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've made them feel so, so shitty about themselves. And actually, no, no, no. You just want them to feel okay about themselves. Please don't feel bad. Please don't feel awkward. We can just pretend it hasn't happened. And people, you know, being slightly inappropriate in the workplace could could um, like give you that feeling. Do you know what I mean? You feel embarrassed yeah. for them. And I, I think, think that that was really nicely executed. Thank you. I think that this is something that, um, I mean, I'm speaking out of turn possibly, but I think people of colour often feel this when they call out white people on something racist and the white people are like, oh my God, oh my, I'm so sorry. Like, fuck, wow, I'm not usually racist. Oh my God, so sorry. And then it's, the onus is now on the person of colour to be like, no, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, you're, exactly. you're fine. And it's like, that's why it's actually most gracious just to be like, oh, I'm sorry, and then move on. Um, mm. But, and that, and that, this is something I think I, I'm very interested in because I think uh, one of, one of my like head canons for Draco uh, is that I think he's someone who would find it difficult to apologize because he would be, par- and in several of my fixes is the case, he wants to apologize to people, but he feels as if 
if he apologizes it'll just be so that he can feel better and that's not a good reason to apologize <laughs> yes the ultimate guilt complex exactly <laughs> so uh i want to talk a little bit about, well quite a bit about adelaide and draco because something i think about a lot or something that was really important to me was having relationships with men who didn't sexualize me um and particularly because I, I i was lucky i had i had lots of like you know my my father and my father's friends who were lovely to me and i had a great relationship with them and that was fine but i um had some some complicated things going on around boys my own age and like basically guys I was attracted to there was something really magical for me in my like university days about making close affectionate friendships with men who I found attractive who just didn't like who just wanted to be my friend Mm. and there was something about that that was just like so soothing like it kind of it was a it was a mingled feeling because part of me was like what are you saying I'm not pretty but then another part of me was like oh you just you just like really like being friends with me and that felt really good and I had like I don't really want to go into it uh, I'm kind of too Victorian to go into this in public but uh yeah I just felt very I felt very um nervy about the idea that the primary thing I offered was sexuality and therefore the idea that there were men who could value me beyond that was sort of shocking and lovely and that's a big part of what I wanted to do with Draco and Adelaide is that Draco is attractive and like Adelaide is attracted to him, but it's more important that she has this relationship with someone who's just like, I want to be like your brother because you just matter to me in this really long-term way. I think probably the first time I had relationships with guys that had no bearing on whether they were attracted to me or not but who were straight was an added thing for me mm-hmm. at uni. Like before then, it was either I had gay friends or I had friends that I was at some point probably going to try and sleep with or probably going to sleep with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at uni, uh, I started doing some comedy, and um, which of course you know from Alice. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a guy who I made friends with in that like comedy troupe, who is a straight guy who is attracted to women, you know, um, and, but who genuinely is just my friend. I just discovered this whole other kind of realm of friendship with boys that, that where someone genuinely wasn't very interested in, in doing anything. Um, And I felt quite safe in that. Yeah. So I do, I do relate, I think. I I feel as if for certain, and I don't think I'm alone in this. Like I I've had, I've I've recently had a conversation with a teenage girl who was like, you know, told me that like all of her male friends wanted to sleep with her, and I was like, you know, it might be good for you to make friends with some guys who don't want to sleep with you. And she was like, what What do you mean? And I was like, they're out there. Like you, <laughs> you but, should find them. But I think it's no, no, no. But it's it's very disarming. Um, this is again like. I don't know if this is a very unlikable problem to have, but there Chester's is a... very hot. <laughs> wow. Um, not actually that, because I, I don't think it is to do with how attractive you are as to whether you get male attention or not. I think it's how available you are. Um, because like, I think that my girlfriend's one of the most attractive people in 
the universe um, as I might. And <laughs> she doesn't get catcalled on the street and she actively gets upset that she doesn't get catcalled <laughs> on the street. It's, it's, it's a constant sort of kind of anti-feminist um, <laughs> chagrin. Um, but she is also six foot two and I'm five foot six. And I have very long hair and I'm quite lanky and sort of gangle around the world in a kind of like confused haze. And she kind of stomps around the world looking at people saying, don't look at me or I'll spike you. And she, funnily enough, doesn't get men being inappropriate to her and putting her in awkward situations. So I don't think it's necessarily how hot you are. I think it's how... No, I've actually long had a theory that... Um, vulnerable cat, you look. <laughs> that catcalling cat correlates a bit with height. Uh, I, I definitely think if you're super tall, you're less likely to be catcalled. That's just a theory I have. It is yeah. not scientific or proven, but I feel it in my heart. Uh, yeah. Okay, where are but, we getting with But this? coming back to this thing was, was just, just quickly, was this idea that like, when someone when you find men who aren't just objectifying you there is this weird was this weird for me sense of like a lack of control with them and like but it but if i can't you know uh hold something back from you or like manipulate you with this thing or like in some way like have this like weird sense of power it's not manipulation it's power mm-hmm. like then what do i have yeah and then being like oh wait he's nice i don't need any of that it's okay <laughs> yes and i think because the female body is so sexualized from such a young age i think that um exactly what you're saying about uh power i think a lot of uh women or like teenagers um f- sort of learn how to exert power over men through like managing how men are attracted to them and that's why i think it's so important to have these friendships where that's not in play and you can learn like it doesn't have to be in play and it's just this wholesome this wholesome new way of relating but i but i would say within that as a caveat that is how it's um perceived when you are so like when you are a teenager or whatever and you feel those things what you just said verbatim is exactly how you feel and correct i would actually say that having kind of gone through a number of evolutions of me and thought about it a lot um that power is illusory it's not it's not real you never have that power no like this idea that you can like manipulate guys with sex just isn't a thing because actually a lot of the time whether you want it or not or whether you want a guy to want you or not quite often the damaging thing about it is they'll take it anyway they'll you feel awkward and guilty if you don't there's your body attracts things that you don't even know you want and then suddenly they're happening and like do you know what I mean like there are so yeah. many situations in which actually you have zero power but we've just been taught to think that we have lots of power and it's actually a tool to make a lot of afab people slash people with like femaly sexualized bodies feel guilty for when those things happen to them. <laughs> Absolutely. Can I just check? I, I'm not up to date. AFAB stands for? Uh, assigned female at birth. Oh, so it's much... basically a way of being like, you got boobs and potentially a vagina, whether or not you necessarily use that to identify with your gender. That's a very handy little shorthand. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think of Anne Boleyn with this a lot. So Anne Boleyn, I'm um, just going to recap for anyone who wasn't educated in the British school system and learned about her every single year for 12 years. Anne Boleyn (laughs) 
was, <laughs> was Henry VIII's second wife. And basically, uh, the story goes, Henry VIII is married to Catherine of Aragon, who's older and uh, can't have children anymore. Anne Boleyn shows up. She's hot as fuck. She's incredibly attractive. She like, I mean, she must have been super attractive, right? Because you can see paintings of her and she's like, she's fine. She doesn't look that hot. But everyone was in love with her. Like um, everyone. Having done a lot of uh, research into cultural codes of beauty during this yeah. time, oh, uh, go up on the 1670s, um, uh, can confirm that uh, what was considered beautiful was very, very different. So if you look at all the paintings of people who were like, you, you read Peeps' diary and he's like, everyone thought she was a massive fitty. Um, <laughs> we look at him and we're like, hmm, it's got a bit of a weird face. Okay, but you say that, but then you look at a picture of Henry VIII's hot sister, Mary, and she was actually really hot. Anyway, point is, uh, Anne Boleyn, everyone was in love with her. And, um, you know, she exerts this control over, she kind of like enchants Henry VIII is the story. Like he just, he not only leaves his wife, he breaks with Rome, right? Uh, And makes his country Protestant so that he can marry her. And even though she's at this point, like, She's not a virgin. That's not okay. You can't just not be a virgin in this time period before you're married. But she isn't, and that's fine. He still marries her because she's just that hot. And then, of course, there's power. Like, I I think about Anne Boleyn a lot in reference to this exact thing that we're talking about, this kind of, like, false, illusory uh, female power. Because then when she can't give birth to a boy, he turns on her. And everyone who was fawning over her when she had the control of the king's heart starts turning on her and eventually she's executed and that is i think just like the archetype of how this power goes you have you have a bit of power for a second but this if you lose an inch of it then you lose everything and that's why it's a really scary fall it's not controllable it's not the power you have from working hard and 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 doing well at a career it's a different kind of power. Yeah, completely. And I think it taps into something else which um, uh, is very instrumental in... It is another, like, instrument of abuse, uh, which is not written about enough, I think, is um, this idea of being put on a pedestal which is inherently wobbly and impossible to stay on. Mm. Um, if, if someone tells you that you are perfect and beyond all comprehension the best thing that's ever happened to their lives and they need you and you fulfill it when you are stood on uh one of those like weird bouncy balls that people used to do exercise on but you, you like you're like oh my god i'm amazing how the fuck am i going to keep this up because i can't stay balancing on this ball for more than you know 20 seconds before falling off and like that to me is like the feeling of being in that kind of abusive power dynamic thing where someone's like, you are perfect and beautiful if you are this kind of sexy and do it in exactly this way. And you give blowjobs like this. Uh, That's terrifying, it, especially do, as a do you young person. Mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think it's the addictive feeling of being able to sustain it for a bit whilst ultimately knowing that you can't be that saint forever. Um Whereas more nuanced and kind of happy relationships understand that people are flawed. And of course, your partner's not always going to be the best person ever. Um, and of course, they're going to do things which annoy you. And that's not the end of the world. Sure, they'll buy the wrong bananas. Like, okay, <laughs> so what? Um, an abusive relationship will be like, I thought you were perfect and you let me down by not being perfect. Yeah, that's so interesting and fucking grim. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about the way Draco is raising Adelaide because uh, I think iconic father (laughs) yeah because he's kind of more her brother really but it is this I've thought a lot about how to raise teenagers because I teach teenagers and I I think that the thing that it that strikes me is um this is such a mundane thing to say the importance of boundaries and I think that you know if you think you're giving a teenager freedom you're actually giving them the burden of creating their own boundaries and that's fucking exhausting and really hard and I've seen this in various different scenarios and it's true that the kids who have slightly strict like not not to go too far on this but if you have some rules they're happier and I think that that's what Draco's going for. Like he has to have some rules and he's clearly like written out. That's, I could almost imagine him like when Adelaide first moved in, Draco like writing out like a kind of constitution for their household and being like, all right, these are the rules. <laughs> because I think, yeah. I think, I think one thing kind of within that, that I would definitely agree with like kids and teenagers need that structure. Um, what I like about Draco's brand of parenting is that none of the rules are because I say so or um, incomprehensible to a teenager. I think especially once you start growing into that space in your life where you want to be having more agency, you want the rules that you follow to feel like, quote unquote, fair. And so you understand the logic behind them because, again, hallmark of an abusive relationship, there is no logic to a rule. You just follow it. Um, And so I liked that that was there because it was a nice counterpoint. I, I think he's trying to think about... So I think a lot of his rules... This is just me going to my headcanon here. I mean, I imagine that Draco's family was quite strict and that, for instance, he would not have been allowed to get a piercing when he was 15. But I also think he's thought a lot about Adelaide's experience and he's like, she needs to have control of her body. And so if she wants to get a belly button piercing, he'll go with her and like, that's fine. She can do that because he's mm. trying to really re-emphasize her own ownership over her own body so that was something I wanted to kind of make clear in their in their relationship with each other Mm, 100% I think also the the thing that made me just flood with warmth for him um, because I think we do very much this is one of those fics where we fall in love with Draco sideways through Harry watching Draco be nice to Adelaide Mm -hmm. um, kind of thing. Um, That's when I really, really fell for him. Um, And it's the moment where you see Draco having clocked that Adelaide fancies Sebastian, but won't fancy Sebastian if Draco (laughs) approves of him. And so does the, the perfect father thing of allowing a teenager that little pocket of freedom and privacy Mm -hmm. to to think that he thinks he knows everything and to just just allow her that um yeah to not try and be her friend i think that's in that, that specific circumstance i think that's what exactly earlier. what it is yeah not trying to be a friend and he kind of is her friend sometimes but in other points he isn't and i think you're right that's a moment when he isn't and i think it's so dangerous to try and be friends with a teenager if you're an adult because ultimately you can't they are secretive you can you can be an ally, but I think thinking you're friends with a teenager, if you're not actually like, I mean, whatever, if we're, if we're talking like a 23-year-old who's friends with a 19-year-old, whatever, this is different. I just think it's dangerous. I think it it's, what do I think? 
I think that when I was a teenager, I was making lots of very terrible life choices um, and <laughs> in various ways. And I expected my friends to essentially be um, enablers. Uh, I would be furious if they didn't let me get on with my bad decisions mm -hmm. um and if they tried to stray too much into telling me what to do i'd either start lying to them or push them away or get really angry um adults jobs was to an extent to be not my friend and therefore you know impose rules that would stop me doing those things that were unhealthy for me yeah the problem was too many adults tried to be my friend um, and those adults that tried to be my friend never succeeded in making me any less like doing the bad things. And I look back on it and go, oh, gosh, those adults I thought were bricks were actually the ones that were, you know, doing good by me. Um, yeah. And the ones that were trying to be more matey with me actually lost out because it it backfired, you know. So I think I'd yeah. probably try and be more of a Draco than I potentially would have wanted when I was a teenager. Yeah, it is interesting. I think um, I I know someone who who has kids, and he says to me that he he he's not their friend now, so that they can be his friend later. He's like trying to raise them to be someone who he'll want to be friends with eventually. But that's a really lovely way of putting it. Yeah, they can't be his friend now, and I think that that's so true. Um, and I I remember meeting someone at a party once who was like, "Yeah, my mother and I were friends when I was a teenager, so now we don't talk." And I was like, "What?" But it wasn't it like Gilmore Girls? Like, weren't you just? No. best friends and she no. said she said no 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 one time she came crawling on all fours into my bed and said daddy's left us and I was like oh yeah you're right that's not <laughs> that's not the, the that's not the kind of friendship you want with your mother yeah that feels quite relatable um, <laughs> small voice Cheska <laughs> small emotions Cheska um comes out to play um yes i think <laughs> that is that is definitely but i think what's interesting about the the draco adelaide dynamic that i don't actually think is unlike a lot of uh abused household parent child dynamics is the fact that they are both shared um victims of abuse in very different ways and draco feels like responsible for Adelaide's abuse to an extent was he an enabler at any point could he have helped should he have stepped in um what what would that what did that do when he did etc like there is a lot of those responsibility dynamics that plays out underneath a lot of their interactions whereby Draco feels incredibly responsible for the way that Adelaide is and Adelaide in turn as we learned in the last chapter feels really responsible about the way that Draco is and she wasn't even really aware of it until like Harry's responsible for Draco and then suddenly she's mm -hmm. like fuck it's not just me having to make sure that he's okay yeah that, that weight is lifted and she can be more of a kid and I think that in a way like the fic is just one really long way of Adelaide learning how to be a bit more of a child Right. And this is why I wanted it to end with Adelaide. Like as in when I got to that part, I was like, I think it, I think it has to end with Adelaide because I actually think that, you know, as much as it is dreary, it is kind of secretly just Adelaide's story in a way. Uh, not just. Oh, we know how Harry and Draco are going to end up. Look at them. They're basically humping each other for the last 
four episodes. Like, (laughs) I know that they're going to be okay. That's not where the narrative stakes lay for me towards the end. Towards Mm -hmm. the end, it was how was it going to work with Adelaide? Because there's this kind of uncertainty over whether she'll accept Harry. Mm -hmm. And we're quite clear as an audience that, yeah, of course she will. But we need to hear it from her almost. And I, I, you know, I deliberately made it so that she's, she's not quite there yet at the end. Like there's this line at the end there where she says something like it still upset her that they loved each other more than her and that they don't love each other. Like Draco does not love Harry more than, than Adelaide. He likes them, you know, in different ways, but they're both so important to him. But she doesn't, at the end of the fic, she still thinks that she has been replaced but I think that she won't always think that. I just think that one, that's oh, a stepping stone. Go on, sorry. No, no. One thing I just wanted to kind of chip in with actually now blew into my mind was I really liked the complex way that Adelaide's uh, trauma, for want of a better word, has inflected her personality it has influenced her personality she is the kind of person she is now um because partially of what's happened to her and if you said i i could take away that trauma like she might be a completely different human being but that doesn't mean she's a damaged or broken human being Mm -hmm. and whilst like she does have some unhealthy um expectations of relationships and some and places unhealthy importance on things like does this person like it is it is quite an abused mentality of like does this or or a destructive one of like does this person love me the most in the world more than anyone else right like that's not a thing that healthy people think about much (laughs) like i hope (laughs) Um, like will that ever completely go away yeah that could probably get to a point where she doesn't think about relationships that way but she's still going to be maybe some of the other kind of sassier parts of her which have been influenced by that history so it's kind of i liked the idea that she is changed but not forever broken Mm. by those personality influencing events yeah i think that's an interesting way of looking at it so that it kind of just becomes this like inlay in her personality without being a you know just a big null of knots in the center of her she's not a manic pixie dream girl she's not gonna like turn up in a movie and i think she strays i think she strays near the the manic like she definitely is a bit of an effie from skins let's no but she's no we she no we get the behind the scenes of effie from skins which is what i like okay like she thinks she's super uber fucked up Mm. and she wears all the right clothes to be super uber fucked up and like she has the aesthetic but I think it's a nice touch to have Draco being the kind of orchestrator of that aesthetic and understanding that that's an aesthetic she needs to inhabit so Mm -hmm. yes he makes her perfumes and her hair dyes and 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 we see the kind of artifice building with the piercings and the different fashions and stuff like I don't know because we see behind the doors it doesn't feel glamorized and it doesn't feel romantic Hmm. Well, I'm glad because I obviously I feel ming- mingled feelings about my my. I'm sure you but you do as well. Like we both want to be Effie and also know that it's problematic to want to be Effie. So it's good to be able to navigate that. In her relationship with Sebastian, uh, something I wrote because of something you mentioned to me once was that Sebastian. There's just a, this kind of hint that I don't think their relationship is going to last forever. I think they're just dating. But he asks her too many questions. 
right? And so that's one of the things she talks about being annoying. And he's a really good teenage boyfriend, right? As teenage boyfriends go, he's a good yeah. egg. But he does do this thing that I remember you telling me about, which is that like once he finds out about her trauma, he's like, we've got to talk about it, babe. And she's like, I don't want to talk about it all the time. That's boring for me. And he's like, mm. come on. <laughs> uh, and I remember you mentioning that this is something that you struggled with sometimes. Yeah, I think there is um, an inherent desire, in, especially when someone bloody loves you, right? If someone loves you or cares about you, um, they want to fix you and make it all better. And it's actually quite arrogant of them to think that sometimes because <laughs> the idea that someone can swoop into your life and, oh, thank you, person that has not been here before. I feel cured now by your magic dick, as I said earlier. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, or in mm -hmm. my girlfriend's case, her magic, I don't know, boobs. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's frustrating because they want to have all these conversations for the first time and understand everything and come to resolutions in that kind of nice, tight narrative way. And actually for you, you, you've had these conversations before you aren't like, they're not your conversation virgin about this. And so you're doing it more for them than that you are for you. And you've tried a lot of the really obvious things that they're about to suggest. And so it just feels like you're more like living out that narrative arc for them than for you. And sometimes the best thing they can do is be present continuously and give you unconditional love continuously and point out when um, things that you are anxious about might not come from a place of reality mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just consistently for, in my girlfriend's case, two and a bit years to the point where I don't wake up with shit as much anymore and um i don't doubt certain things as much anymore and i don't feel as awkward about not wanting sex anymore sometimes and stuff like that it's just gentle really long-term shit i think you're absolutely right it's the it's the difference between someone thinking they can fix you by having five long intense chats with you and someone knowing they can improve your mental being mental well-being by just consistently being kind to you like those are two different things and the second one you know what it's like it's it's like thinking that you can um get rich quick right yeah but you can't you, you you basically can't you have to just work hard for a long time yeah and and you can't you can't solve someone's uh ptsd by talking and talking and talking about it some although you know talking can be helpful Sometimes it's about being in bed with that person consistently every night and cuddling them every single night and them just subconscious. It just seeps into your mm. brain, like subconsciously, like when you are around this person, good things happen and you are safe. Mm. And like, they are not going to fly off the handle about a thing. Like that's, that's, you know, consistency. And I think that's what kids need and it's what adults need. You know, yeah, We're all quite simple creatures really, aren't we? Yeah. Um, okay, well, I think we've we've covered Adelaide in quite a bit of detail. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, Harry. Uh, Harry in this, I mean, as you probably know by now, I'm less interested in Harry than I am in Draco. Although the fic I'm writing right now, Scaredy Cat, which I'm going to be reading after this, uh, is the, my first Harry-centric fic. And it's about Harry having PTSD and Draco uncontrollably turning into a kitten. Uh, what? 
god <laughs> i'm so excited it's a mad a mad romp okay but anyway um I don't know. I just feel like he has got some things going on, this Harry, right? He's drifting, which is my favorite kind of Harry. Uh, and I think he has some pretty fucked up views on love just because of what happened with him in Dumbledore. So I think he does have this absolute paranoia about betrayal, which is the reason he's such a twat in the first four chapters. What do you mean with with, with, with the kind of Dumbledore parallel, parallel? I'm interested. So... In the fic, he has dated this guy who betrayed him, right? Who uh, sold him out to a paper. And there's this moment where Hermione says that it's not actually about Andrew, the guy. It's actually about Dumbledore. Like, that's what's upset Harry so much, is that he's had... Like, the, if you look at the canon, it is, it is pretty messed up, right? Because Dumbledore is this kind of father figure for him. And then in the fifth book, he like doesn't talk to him for a year and it really, really upsets mm. Harry. And then at the end of the fifth book, he's like, oh yeah, by the way, <laughs> you're destined to either die or kill him. And then in the seventh book, you realize, no, he was always destined to die. Like, you know, I think Dumbledore does love Harry as a, as a, you know, person, but he also has been just basically raising him as a lamb to the slaughter. And I think that that in this fic has had a big impact on Harry and how he how he um trusts people because yeah he's had this like one you know father figure that's overshadowed his whole life that it turned out all the time was prioritizing the greater good over his well-being that's gonna mess you up it will i think i think it kind of plays into that larger thing of like harry as a person separate from harry as instrument against the dark forces he's he's kind of like a pawn in the great chess game of life um but i thought what i thought was really interesting about the um harry being betrayed by ex-boyfriend thing was kind of in a similar way to how we were talking about one event being the root of trauma versus something which confirms an unhealthy self-relationship dynamic thing is this is this thing of like when harry actually starts talking about it he's like well actually maybe i think he wanted to break up with me before then and you know was this just a way out and da 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 and it you you start seeing him kind of really unpicking what upset him about the whole situation and as usual it's not that this guy did this one thing, which was an event which has left him traumatized for life. It's there was actually a really uncomfortable dynamic for a really long time, which made him really doubt himself and think he maybe wasn't that great. And then one kind of thing really, you know, confirmed all of the, the fears that he had about himself mm. and has now, you know, meant that he feels terrible. Yeah, that's really, I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're right. Um, and I think that's very sensible um okay i'm sorry i'm realizing we've been talking for fucking ages uh but <laughs> i wanted to get a little bit to uh draco's fear of hell because i think that that was one of my favorite elements of the story to write and i i really really love characters who fright who are frightened of hell like in literature it's one of my favorite things uh one of my favorite moments in literature is in huckleberry finn when huckleberry um is trying to decide whether or not he's going to um like basically sell out jim who's an escaped slave mm. and huckleberry at no point in the entire novel at no point veers from the belief that helping a slave escape is evil 
He really believes that all the way through. Uh, and everyone agrees with him. Everyone in the book believes that. And there's this moment where he's about to um, betray Jim and like write a letter to Jim's owner being like, I know where Jim is. And when he's thinking of that, he's like, God, that makes me feel great. I feel really clean and pure. And like, I'm going to, you know, I'm pleasing God. And then he thinks about all the things Jim has done for him. And Jim is like a real father figure for him. And so suddenly there's this moment where he goes, I'll go to hell. It's fine. I'll just go to hell for Jim. And he really believes that by continuing to help Jim, he is actually going to like eternal damnation for all time. And it's a big stake. It's so huge. It's so, I mean, how do you, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you have a character who believes in hell, there's so many interesting things you could do with it. But, but I think with, with, with Huckleberry Finn incident, it's do I consign myself to hell with a capital H or do I consign myself to the hell that will be the rest of my life if I have to live knowing that I did this? Um, and so it's kind of an externally imposed hell versus an internally imposed or generated hell. And I think internally generated hells will always be worse. Mm. The externally generated hell being like Satan. Brimstone, and, yeah, Satan, yeah, yeah. fire, mm. Christianity. But I think that. that but I think that that often is internal, right? And I think in this fic, for instance, you know, that I think one of the main ways Draco tortures himself is with this, like, imperfect understanding of Christianity and this this feeling that he's going to hell. He, he spends a lot of time thinking about what's, what it's going to be like when he goes to hell. And I think the reason that hell is so attractive to him as a, not attractive, but, like, is so effective as a as a terror is that, I imagine that one of his greatest fears is dying by fire because uh, Crab died in the Room of Requirement fire. So I think he would have... I mean, if you have a close friend who died while you were in the room of a fire, I think fire would have such a huge impact on on your... Like, how you... Yeah. What you were frightened of. And so um, then when he kind of comes across just like a half-hearted mention of hell, he's just like, "What? oh my God, this is now the most important thing in my life. Um, and I'm, I, I, another, another book that I think I was thinking of, maybe even more this than an Huckleberry Finn, uh, was um, Brighton Rock by Graham Greene, where there's this really villainous 17-year-old called Pinky. And like he is, he's truly a villain. He's a awful abhorrent person he carries around a little vial of acid to throw in people's faces um yeah yeah, no he's horrible but he's also a diehard catholic and he knows he's going to hell but he doesn't know how to you just like that's just this undercurrent of, of just horror in him as he lives his life knowing that he knows for a fact where he's going um and i just find that so interesting this idea of of characters who are so certain of hell and i yeah. You get it a lot. You get it a lot with queer characters. Like, I, I I can't remember what I was reading the other day, but I had there was a guy who was talking about the fact that he just knew that he was going to hell because he was gay, but God made him that way, so it was really confusing and he couldn't really unpick it. Um, very heartbreaking. Sad. Mm. I know. Um, uh, one of the things that I think is it's interesting to hear you talk about Draco being attracted to hell as a instrument of torture because i saw his obsession with hell as perhaps filtered through my own lens as we all do with literature um craving an arbitrary index of 
culpability that lies externally like the idea that there is an eternal judgment day and that draco if he has been bad is going to get his punishment that he deserves and someone else is going to make all of those decisions for him is i think quite inherently attractive to him because he's yeah. been in a lot of really morally quandaryish situations. I completely agree. I think that when he was younger, uh, at least in this fic, when he was younger, there was probably more of a sense of like, I know what's right and I know what's wrong because my father's yeah. told me. And then that authority was toppled and he's just completely at a loss. And I think this is why he's a character who's so ripe for religious conversion because he just, he's a follower fundamentally as a character. He's not a leader. He wants to be told what to do. And I think that that's why Church of England is quite a good option for this particular version of Draco because as churches go, it's pretty untoxic in terms of how much it tells, like what it tells you to do. It has, to be fair, officially come out against uh, homosexuality, which is ah! inexplicable given that like, Why? I don't think I've ever met a Church of England priest who wasn't gay. So like the, the whole church is That's gay. That's very true, actually. They're all very gay. So I don't know why they have this, why they've decided to like make oh. this the hill they're going to die on. It's stupid. But um, that aside, it is by and large a church which is really more about ritual than it is about mm. lifestyle. I really love the moment. I love the moment where Draco is like, this is, this is, this is real magic. Like, Harry's like, no, magic is magic. But, but this, this idea that like real, real magic isn't the thing that you use to unlock a door or do the dishes. It's like the inexplicable and the numinous and that like feeling of awe that you get and, mm togetherness and being a part of something and the singing and the everything i i definitely am attracted to those parts of judaism like i consider myself to be jewish even though no i don't believe in a lot of the kind of key doctrine um i'm still very much jewish and still definitely sing all the songs and do all the prayers do you know what i mean i think that um one of the problems with the secularization that we've undergone in society lately is that it's just kind of an absence it's not a replacement and so like atheism is just the absence of a belief in god but like i think that leaves people very sort of spiritually yearning uh and i that i mean i'm quite keen on ritual i think ritual makes us happy so uh yeah i i, I get what you're saying about like being like well i like most of judaism except for the core beliefs um, but that's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah i get that um no, I, that church scene, the one where Draco listens to the music and like has this basically like religious awakening, I think was my favorite part to write. It was really, um, I just listened to uh, Eric Whitaker's Lux on repeat, which is the song that I was imagining him listening to. Oh man, yeah, no, that is literally, that's perfect. Yes. <laughs> I was, I, it really made me think of the scene in Unorthodox. Have you seen Unorthodox? I have not uh really amazing really amazing thing that i put off watching for a very long time because i was worried i'd get defensiveness about my juniors i was <laughs> like ah uh, this is a series about uh a girl who runs away from an extremely orthodox community of jews in um william williamsburg in um new york mm -hmm. um and it's quite oppressive and it's quite unhappy and she moves away and 
point in her life. And I was like, oh, I don't want to see something negative about Jews, so I'm going to avoid it. But there is this scene where she goes into a church and sees this choir singing when she's she's left you know, New York and everything and she's finding her own life. And it's this kind of re-engagement with religion in a numinous uh, slash beauty sense um, feeling part of something and that I, kind of headiness. I don't think I know what numinous means. What does numinous mean? Um, it is the word that uh, is often associated with the religious feeling of there being something intangible and more in a um, kind of ethereal, beautiful way. So it's the feeling of like, it's it's almost akin to the sublime. I was just thinking. with religious connotations. Okay. So like you're standing in a church and like this choir is echoing and you feel a little bit like almost dizzy with the sound of it. And like there's incense and you feel like maybe there's someone there with you. Mm, that's a lovely word. Thanks. Um, I, yeah, I think, no, I wasn't going to say anything. I just started that sentence confidently without an end point in sight. <laughs> just, just give it a go. Start <laughs> sentence and hope it goes somewhere. I do that most of the time. I'll be honest. Um, yeah, I actually, I, I had, I mean, I, I use a lot of allusions in my writing to a degree where I think it's actually probably unacceptable at our point in time because we don't see allusions that way. Um, but I love using allusions. I think they because I my main thing in my life that I do is read. So to me, illusions are how I am in connection with other writers. Um, but I used a Coleridge illusion in that one scene where I write, it fell on his heart like a silence, clean as snow. And I'm alluding to the rhyme of the ancient mariner. The mariner has just heard a bunch of angels singing and then they fall uh, quiet. And he writes, the silence sank like music on my heart. And I just think... That is one of my favourite phrases I think I've ever heard. The silence That's sank tasty. like music on my heart. It's just so beautiful. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, by the way, uh, listeners, not a particularly hard poem to read because he uses very, very simple and like classic language. So, um, and it's broken up into seven parts uh, and it's got a... It's quite fanfic in structure, actually. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of nice. Would it, I would not... chunks. I guess, I don't know if I'd... It doesn't really have much of a romance, does it? But it's it's uh. like Pirates of the Caribbean. It's got a Pirates of the Caribbean vibe. It's just a, if you want to read a good piece of classic literature that's gorgeous and easy, I would say the Rhyme of the Intramariner is a solid bet. Oh, I just wanted to mention um, that. So this was written. This fic was written for um, Erized, which is a um, a fan a fandom festival where uh, the way it works is you write a list of things you like to read, and then someone writes you a gift. And you get given a different recipient who has given you a list of things they like to read and you write them a gift. And so my recipient, my, the person who I wrote this fic for was a person called Walla Wiltshire. And uh, they, they, it was really nice actually because they had quite um, sort of like loose stipulations, right? Because, um, you know, it wasn't like, I would like this plot, please. Uh, but so the main things that I took from them is they, they were like, they, I really want Pansy Parkinson to show up. And I was like, all right. Right. <laughs> and it's funny because I actually hadn't, like, I don't think. Pansy did not feature very much in this fit, gal. She like, did not. <laughs> I love your pansy. pansy. Your pansy. I fancy your pansy. <laughs> Girl, I, I, in, in, the, in, the, in the bucket list, I, pff, oh, I tell you. Uh, I know that you, you have your eye on writing some pansy own. Yes, I do. 
Um, yes, I so did. I didn't really, I would not have put Pansy in this fic if it hadn't been for Wella Wiltshire, but I'm actually glad I did because I think that it was good to just have Draco have a friend come back into the story at some point. You know, that was just a nice thing. It uh, also it also really engages with the 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 kind of <laughs> it's so re- relevant to like what I was saying about abuse, but that <laughs> thing of like um, people feeling isolated from their support networks and that not allowing them to see. And, and also being uh, afraid of how people they used to know will see them now and, yeah. you know, guilty about not having got in contact, et cetera, et cetera. I liked that there was that kind of fraughtness within Draco himself about reaching out. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was really glad to have that as a suggestion. And then the other main thing was that they were like, I would maybe like to have Draco make perfumes. And I was like, that is adorable. And it was such a... I was wondering how you came to that, you know. Really? I was I was I was in the shower this morning, which is potentially more information than your lo- lovely listeners need to know. Um, but also, no, so I was in the shower, and I was thinking, how did she come up with um, that as a character trait? Because it, it it is a really interesting tool to understand him, his relationship to her. Um, this idea of kind of constructing image and the way that you're viewed and the way that people receive you and stuff. And he really understands that about her and understands that need. And I don't know, it's just such a lovely tool. So it's, the idea that it was, it was given as limitation is just so classic as the like limitation is the biggest uh, freedom. When yeah. Writing. I, I mean, I really did end up loving it. I thought it was, it was a beautiful way to show how much he loves her. Right, and the, the way that her, his love for her manifests. Uh, so I, I and really makes like him that. skilled. Yes, and makes also. him really skilled. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I also, what else do they say? I think they said something like um, they had this line where they were like, "I just what I love most about Drake and Harry is that they've always been circling each other." And so I think that that was like something. I think I used that line in there where it was like, "Well, you guys have always been circling each other," but also I think that I used that as a kind of inspiration for like how their relationship functioned, where it did feel like when they first see each other after, like when they first have sex, right? It's this sense of like they're like magnets just coming towards each other, and I. I uh, I think that that was inspired in part by the suggestions, right? Because it's just this like they've been surfing nearer and nearer and nearer each other, and then they kind of just collide, and then mm-hmm. that's messy, and then they have to like recircle out and then circle back in again. And also, there's there's a moment when I think it's in the I forgot which chapter it is, but the chapter where they're kind of very lovey. I think it's just after one of them said, "I love you." You're talking about the scarf scene, right? Where they like exchange. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's lots of coat giving and jumper wearing, <laughs> and it's all very adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment where one of them, and I think it's Harry, kind of uh, self-reflexively l- looks at their relationship and kind of does the like, oh, who would have thought? You know, has it has it has this been inevitable at school? Would you imagine us like this? Like, do you know what I mean? There's, mm-hmm. and I think for Drarry as a relationship one thing that kind of always haunts them is this idea of the external eye of the were they supposed to be together what would have happened if they got together earlier like Mm -hmm. i don't know i i I always find it quite interesting looking like looking at a relationship where you'd constantly be looking at it with other people's eyes and wondering if you're part of something bigger 
Yeah, I've read some really interesting fics where Harry ends up feeling guilty that where, where that where the idea is that after Harry cursed Draco in the bathroom in the sixth book, Draco was secretly hoping Harry would come and talk to him, and instead Harry didn't. And like, if Harry had just talked to him, then like Draco's entire life would have been different. And so then there's this kind of like guilt that Harry ends up feeling where he's like, yeah, why didn't I? And it's true that in the book, it is a bit, it is a bit fucked up that Harry just kind of like almost kills Draco. Then is like, why do I have to do detention? (laughs) And like never talks to him about it. They don't ever have a chat to clear the air. Like that's just, that's just how the plot unravels. (laughs) Yeah. J.K. Rowling has not made herself the most, um, the, 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 uh, how am I going to say this Jake Rowling hasn't expressed uh, an intense desire to kind of use talking to various fraught communities as a, as a way of resolving issues it's more just kind of shout a thing and then recede back into Twitter um, that's very diplomatic yes uh, she has she has made some odd odd choices Yay. in the last few years uh, one of the problems I have with recording the podcasts is that I really have a very limited number of accents I can do well. And I had decided I wanted Adelaide to have this like London girl school accent. And I've realized oh, Harry. <laughs> I have two kinds of accents. I have accents I can actually do that I can mm. like be a person in. Right. Mm. And then I have accents that like I would use in a sketch for a comedy show are not I'm not prepared like I am not capable of having them be like a fully fledged character right and Adelaide's accent I sort of started to realize was really more one of my joke accents and I think it made the podcast it made it harder if you were listening to the story to like her as a character I read it as intentional um I think that Adelaide is someone who is still experimenting with really, really controlling how other people see her. Um, I think that she's a social chameleon uh, with no set voice, really, uh, when it comes down to it. And if she were to move school and suddenly it was cool to be, you know, uh, more South London or whatever, she'd change her voice like friggin' that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, And I think that when she kind of spoke, you know, more like this, and it's like, well, Harry, you could save if you like. Like, that voice um, also implies to me, I'm constantly thinking about how other people are viewing me. Um, and I'm keeping you at arm's distance. And I liked that as a detail. Oh, I do think it would be really interesting to hear what, to, to see what people's response would be to that character in terms of you know what she's been through and how it's affected her if she were from a different class background yeah no I think it'd be really interesting because it it would affect how she was viewed I think um and we're very used to seeing a certain kind of fucked up girl and they're always posh (laughs) right and it's it's like how all the anorexic girls in media are white right oh Um, yeah um, I was speaking to my girlfriend who's also mega into fanfic who was telling me about the power of fanfic lying in the fact that these are reader-driven stories with reader-driven representation in them. So Hollywood would never commission uh, something with 
three black queer protagonists but fuck it in fan fiction you can mm-hmm. um hollywood's actually an idiot though i read an article the other day where it was saying it, they're like missing out on something like 10 billion pounds worth of revenue just simply by like not writing the stories that are representative of like the people that could come and watch their movies okay you say that but the problem is uh that you like l- lose you, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I agree with you. They should, but um, it's not as simple as that because you then lose a bunch of viewers. Oh yeah. Well, this is the thing. So I've actively been told in um, scripts that I've been developing uh, that uh, if you put in queer characters that could be read as not queer, um, it's kind of background queers, that it's kind of, more preferable because then they can just cut those scenes when they make the Chinese edit or when they right. make China is the... a big problem. Yeah. Cause it's really American edit. Yeah. Yeah. So there is that, but kind of what, coming back Sorry. to what I was going to say, yes. <laughs> we got um, no interesting tangent though. Um, as a kind of white, uh, blonde writer, um, I'm speaking about you. Um, not me. I am not blonde. Um, how do you like negotiate wanting to write those kind of diverse stories of diversity of experience as well as of identity, like whilst not having that experience or that identity, but then also like, you know, getting sensitivity readers to check it out and stuff like that. I think you, you always walk a really nice balance. Well, thank you. Uh, I, you know, this is a really thorny issue. I fundamentally believe that writers can write outside their own experience. I think that's a really core belief of mine. And I know this to be the case because I know that I have read male writers writing about women in a way that have made me feel seen and like understood so if if like a Victorian man can write about Dickens in Kate in um in Nicholas Nickleby uh writes about Kate Kate Nickleby gets um sexually assaulted at one point and he writes that scene in Kate Nickleby's head and it's just exactly like how it feels and if Dickens can do that then I think I can, with research and thought and sensitivity, write beyond my own experience. And I, oh, I, entirely. And I'm fucking hell. This this fic shows that, like, on a, on a on an experiential level, I can confirm you can write sensitively about it. And 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 how did I even get onto this? I think I was thinking about the the. <laughs> I accents, know how what it yeah. was. I was like accents that you can or can't do. And then I was like, what would happen if you were to like write a character from a different nationality that had an accent that you couldn't do and then I was like hmm writing people who are different to you I think at that point I would probably just give them an English accent and make a note at the beginning of the podcast and be like look this person is from Jamaica and I'm just not gonna do (laughs) I'm not gonna try that (laughs) I'll just recap the fix that I've mentioned here that I think are fixed that if you're interested in I'm literally gonna go and read them all Okay, Sorry, I'll, sa- I'll send them to you. you. Okay, so here are the fix. So um, the first one was um, There Are Things Unbearable by Vans, and that is spelt V-A-N-N-E-S. That is not a dreary. It is Laurent and Damon uh, from Captive Prince, and it is um, an unfinished fic, although I will say, although it's unfinished, I think there's a lot of um, resolution, and I think it is still pretty satisfying, even if you don't finish it. Uh, you can really see that everything is going to be okay. Um, and if you just want to read about like an adult man recovering from having been abused as a young teenager, I think that that's a really powerful depiction, and it and it talks about things in a lot of detail, and it's just really beautiful. 
Um, the next one was Now My Neck Is Open Wide, Begging for a Fist Around It by Lady Slytherin. And that was the one where Harry was abused and it had the, the pictures of the arm that gets bruises on it long before Harry is actually ever hurt physically by his husband. Uh, and then uh, the last one was Alex Meg's A Big Black Sky. And that's the one where Draco has a child and is being abused by his husband. And then uh, that, that one's just a really... It's just very feelsy at the end. It's just a very, um, it's a very sweet story. Kid fic, you know, as a kid. So uh, I recommend all of those. But Cheska, I wanted to ask you, um, if if someone liked Teenage Wasteland, what is a book you think they might like? Oh, oh. Um, I would have to say, okay, not thematically consistent, but in terms of like what drives uh uh, feels ye codependence. Oh, relationships. What are they? Are you a bit deeply troubled? Mm, can a relationship fix it? Potentially, maybe not. Um, <laughs> uh, the book I am not myself these days by Josh Kilmer, Kilmer Purcell. Josh Kilmer Purcell um, is, I would argue, my favorite book in the entire world. Wow. And anyone who enjoyed Teenage Wastelands would enjoy this book. Um, I'm not going to ruin too much, but it's essentially about a guy who, and it sounds more angsty than it. No, no, it is. It's, it's <laughs> okay. It's a. It's deeply funny. Like it's like two laughs per page. Like you will be laughing consistently throughout. Um, it's about an advertising agent who is also a drag queen, uh, with two silicon goldfish filled boobs. It's like the boobs are silicone and they've got water in them and he puts goldfish in them and then uses them as his boobs as a drag queen. Mm -hmm. He's insanely cool. Um, (laughs) And he basically has an alcohol addiction and just, uh, or otherwise an alcoholism and is just completely at loss with his life. It's just going so badly. And then he falls in love with a um, a kind of dom, I guess, like a, a, a sex worker who's also a dom who has a bit of an um, healthy relationship to relationships at the best of times but does really like save him in terms of like telling him what to do um and it's just so funny and so good that sounds amazing I know oh it's it. so good <laughs> uh could you repeat the title and author i am not myself these days by josh kilmer purcell everyone okay. should read it <laughs> Okay, a strong recommendation from Cheska right there. I I couldn't really think of a book. Uh, I mean, I guess you could read Lolita if you want to read about... Um, I mean, as, as classic novels about abuse I'd go. advise it. I'd advise That's it. Interesting, because I know that you have strong feelings about it. So I, I, I'm really glad it exists. I think um, it's super interesting. And as long as you read it with the understanding that it, it's fucked up and no child abuse ain't good like and no no matter what this kid no matter what this guy says this kid does she can't be culpable Mm -hmm. because fundamentally that's not how adult child relationships work then it's a really fascinating read someone like my girlfriend would say that it shouldn't be written and no one should bother reading it because actually why are we making immoral art and i think that art shouldn't be moral so you know that's a whole pandora's box to explore (laughs) yeah 
Um, can of worms for sure uh yeah all right i'll say as far as classic literature goes i'm pretty sure that lolita is the most famous depiction of child abuse and therefore it might be worth reading it uh i don't remember it being a really hard read i mean i read it when i was like 15 and it was fine um well cheska thank you so much for um you know sort of opening up your your past to us for our (laughs) learning purposes uh i really appreciate it you've been um, very helpful throughout my writing career in telling me about these things but uh where can we find you if someone is now obsessed with you if someone would like to stalk you in the street how can they what's your home oh, address your bank I account numbers what are they uh seven, seven, no I'm, joking. Um, uh, I, <laughs> I'm not an organized enough to know my bank details <laughs> you're, you're full um i uh so i'm on twitter at Forestal Rights, that's F-O-R-R-I-S-T-A-L, rights, like the verb. Um, uh, you can also uh, find me on Instagram with that same ha- uh, handle, so at Forestal Rights. Or if you're interested in knowing what I look like as a sexy, sexy man, think somewhere between uh, Oscar Wilde and Captain Jack Sparrow. It's not Oscar, Oscar Wilde vibe, sure, but he wasn't actually very hot whereas you are very oh hot. it's 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 is really a sight to behold lots of glitter <laughs> um uh then follow my drag account uh at drag prov so that's d-r-a-g-p-r-o-v um for a very sexy drag king indeed that was the bonus episode for teenage wasteland thank you so much to cheska for talking to me i really appreciate it you can follow cheska on twitter at forestal rights so that's f-o-r-r I-S-T-A-L and then the word writes W-R-I-T-E-S or for Cheska as a sexy drag king you can follow her on Instagram at dragprov so that's D-R-A-G-P-R-O-V Next week I have another interview episode and I'm really excited about it it's about colonialism and fandom so please tune in for that After that I will begin reading from my latest fic Scaredy Cat in which Draco has something called stress catism and Harry has unresolved war trauma. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I know it was long, but I really appreciate people taking the time to hear what Jessica had to say on abuse and the media.